Monday matinees begin right here on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Chatterbox Audio Theatre presents The Necklace by Guy de Maupassant. She was one of those pretty and charming girls born, as if by some error of fate, into a family of minor civil servants. She had no dowry, no expectations, no means of meeting a man of wealth and distinction who would understand, love, and wed her. So she let herself be married off to a low-level clerk in the Ministry of Education. Her tastes were simple, for she had never been able to afford anything better but she was unhappy as if she had married beneath her station. Women have neither caste nor class, and if they are not of noble birth, they can still use their beauty, grace, and charm as calling cards. A woman's natural guile, her instinctive elegance, and her talent for repartee are her only marks of rank, so that a poor girl with no lineage may easily be on a level with the highest lady in the land. She suffered endlessly for she felt she was intended for a life of refinement and luxury. She suffered because of the run-down apartment they lived in, the peeling walls, the battered chairs, and the ugly curtains. All these things, which other women of her station may not even have noticed, tormented her and insulted her pride. The spectacle of the young Breton girl who did the household chores stirred sad regrets and impossible fancies. She dreamed of silent antechambers hung with oriental tapestries, lit by tall, bronze candelabras, and of two tall footmen in knee breeches dozing in the huge armchairs, overcome by the heavy heat of the stove. She dreamed of vast drawing rooms dressed with antique silks, exquisite pieces of furniture displaying priceless ornaments, and of small, charming, perfumed sitting rooms created just for tea-time gatherings of one's most intimate friends, who would be the most famous and sought-after personalities of the day, men whose attentions were much coveted and desired by all women. When she sat down to dinner at the round table, covered with a three-day-old cloth, opposite her husband, who always lifted the lid of the soup tureen and declared delightedly, Ah, beef stew. Splendid. There's nothing I like better than a nice stew. She dreamed of elegant dinners, gleaming silverware, and of being surrounded by hanging tapestries representing mythical characters and strange birds in enchanted forests. She dreamed of exquisite dishes served on fabulous china plates, of hearing flirtatious compliments whispered into her ear while she maintained an inscrutable smile and ate the rosy flesh of a trout or the delicate wings of a grouse. She had no fine dresses, no jewelry, nothing. And that was all she cared about. She felt that she had been made for such things. She would have given anything to be noticed, to be envied, to be attractive and in demand. She had a rich friend, a classmate from her convent school, on whom she never called now, for she was always so unhappy when she returned home. For days on end, she would weep tears of sorrow, regret, despair, and anguish. One evening, her husband came home, looking highly pleased with himself, holding a large envelope. Look, I have something for you. 
the Minister of Education and Madame Georges Romponneau request the pleasure of the company of Monsieur and Madame Loisel at the Ministry Ball on the evening of Monday, January 18th. What do you want me to do with this? Why, darling, I thought you'd be pleased. You'd never go anywhere, and it's an opportunity, a splendid opportunity. I had the hardest time getting a hold of an invitation. Everybody's after them. They're very much in demand, and not many are handed out to us clerks. You'll get to see all the important people there. But what am I supposed to wear if I go? What about the dress you wear for the theater? It looks all right to me. The words died in his throat. He was totally disconcerted, dismayed by the sight of his wife, who had begun to cry. Two large tears ran slowly down from the corners of her eyes towards the sides of her mouth. What's the matter? What's the matter with you? Making a supreme effort, she controlled her tears and, wiping her damp cheeks, replied in a calm voice. Nothing's the matter. It's just that I haven't got anything to wear, and so I can't go to this ball. Give the invitation to one of your colleagues with a wife who's better off for clothes than I am. Please, Mathilde. What would it cost to get something suitable that would do for other occasions? Something fairly simple? She thought for a few moments, working out a budget in her mind but also wondering how much she could decently ask for, without drawing an immediate refusal and a horrified protest from her husband, who was careful with his money. I can't say precisely, but I, I believe I could do it on 400 francs. He turned slightly pale, for this was exactly the amount he had been saving to buy himself a shotgun for the following summer. He had planned on joining some friends who spent their Sundays shooting larks in the lowlands of Nanterre. Very well. I'll give you your 400 francs, but try to find a nice dress. The day of the party drew near, and Madame Loiselle seemed sad, worried, and anxious. Her dress was ready, however. One evening, her husband said to her, What's wrong? You have been acting very strangely these last few days. It bothers me that I don't have a single piece of jewelry, not one stone that I can put on. I'll look completely drab. I would almost rather not go to the party. Why don't you wear a few flowers? It's very elegant at this time of year. For ten francs, you could get two or three magnificent roses. No, there's nothing more humiliating than looking poor when you're surrounded by rich women. How silly you are. Go and see your friend, Madame Forestier, and ask her to lend you some jewelry. You know her well enough for that. You're right. I never thought of that. The next day, she called on her friend and told her all about her problem. Madame Forestier went over to her dressing table took out a large box, brought it over, unlocked it, and said, Choose whatever you like. At first, she saw some bracelets. Then, a string of pearls. And a Venetian cross made of gold and gems of exquisite workmanship. She tried on a few necklaces before the mirror, hesitating, reluctant to take them off and give them back. Do you have anything else? Yes, of course. Go ahead and keep searching. I don't know what you're looking for. 
All of a sudden, she discovered, in a black satin case, a superb diamond necklace. Her heart began to beat wildly with desire. Her hands trembled as she picked it up. She fastened it around her throat over her high-necked dress and sat looking at herself in rapture. Could you lend me this? Nothing else, just this. Yes, certainly. She threw her arms around her friend, kissing her extravagantly, and then ran home, taking her treasure with her. The day of the party arrived. Madame Loiselle was a success. She was the prettiest woman there. Elegant, graceful, radiant, and wonderfully happy. All the men looked at her, inquired who she was, and asked to be introduced. All the cabinet secretaries and undersecretaries wanted to waltz with her. Even the minister noticed her. She danced ecstatically, wildly, intoxicated with pleasure, giving no thought to anything else in the triumphant celebration of her beauty and her glorious success. She floated on a cloud of happiness made up of the universal homage and admiration she received, of the desire she had aroused, and the sense of complete victory, so sweet to a woman's heart. She left at about four in the morning. Since midnight, her husband had been dozing in a small, empty side room with three other gentlemen whose wives were having a wonderful time. He helped her put on the coat, which he had fetched when it was time to go, a commonplace everyday coat, strikingly at odds with the elegance of her dress. It brought her down to earth, and she was anxious to hurry away in order to avoid being noticed by the other women who were wrapping themselves up in their rich furs. Wait, wait, you'll catch cold outside. Let me go and catch a cab. But she refused to listen to him and ran quickly down the stairs. When they were outside in the street, there was no cab in sight. They began looking for one, hailing all the cabbies they saw driving by in the distance. They walked down to the River Seine in desperation, shivering with cold. At last, they found on the embankment one of those age-old hackney cabs, which only emerge in Paris after dark, as if ashamed to parade their poverty in the full light of day. It brought them back to their front door in the Rue des Martyrs, and they sadly walked up to their apartment. It was all over for her. And he was thinking he would have to be back at the ministry at ten. Standing in front of the mirror, she took off the coat she had been wearing over her shoulders to get one last look at herself in all her glory. But suddenly she gave a cry. <gasps> oh! The necklace was no longer around her neck. I, I, Madame Forestier's necklace, I, I don't have it anymore. What? How? But that's impossible. They searched in the pleats of her dress, in the folds of her coat, and in her pockets. They looked everywhere. They could not find it. Are you sure you still had it on you when you left the ballroom? Yes. I remember touching it in the entrance hall. But if you had lost it in the street, we'd have heard it fall. So it must be in the cab. That's right. That's probably it. Did you get the cab's number? No. Did you happen to notice it? No. They looked at each other in total dismay. Finally... Loiselle started to get dressed again. I'm going to go back the way we came to see if I can find it. And he went out. She remained as she was, still wearing her evening gown, not having the strength to go to bed, sitting disconsolately on a chair by the empty grate, her mind a blank. Her husband returned at about seven o'clock. 
He had found nothing. He went to the police station, to the newspapers where he advertised a reward, toward the cab companies, and tried every possible place where the faintest of hopes compelled him to go. She waited for him all day long in the same distracted condition, thinking of the appalling catastrophe that had befallen them. Loiselle came back that evening, his face lined and pale. He had not come up with anything. You'll have to write to your friend and tell her you broke the clasp on her necklace and that you are getting it repaired. That'll give us time to work out what we'll have to do next. She took down his dictation. A week later, they had lost all hope. We must see about replacing the necklace. The next day, they took the case in which the necklace had come and called on the jeweler whose name was inside. He looked through his registry and told them that he was not the one who had sold it and that he must have only supplied the case. They then went from jeweler to jeweler, looking for another necklace just like the first one, trying to remember it, both of them ill with remorse and worry. In a shop in the Palais Royal, they found a string of diamonds that seemed to them completely identical to the one they were looking for. It was worth 40,000 francs. The jeweler was prepared to let them have it for 36,000. They asked him not to sell it for three days. And they got him to agree to take it back for 34,000 if the one that had been lost had been returned before the end of February. Loiselle had 18,000 francs, which his father had left him. He would have to borrow the rest. He borrowed the money. A thousand francs here, 500 there. Sometimes he borrowed five louis. Other times as little as three. He signed promissory notes. Agreed to pay exorbitant rates of interest. Did business with usurers. And the whole tribe of moneylenders. He mortgaged the rest of his life. Signed papers without knowing if he would ever be able to honor his commitments. And then, sick with worry about the future, frightened by the grim poverty which stood ready to pounce, and by the prospect of the physical deprivation and mental torture laying ahead, he went to the jewelers to get the new necklace and put down on the counter 36,000 francs. When Madame Loiselle took the necklace back, Madame Forestier said in a huff, You should really have brought it back sooner. I might have needed it. She did not open the case as her friend had feared she might. If she had noticed the substitution, what would she have thought? What would she have said? Would she not have taken her for a thief? Madame Loiselle came to know the ghastly life of those coping with abject poverty. From the very first, she resigned herself to what she could not alter and behaved heroically. Their appalling debt would have to be repaid. She was determined to pay. They dismissed the maid. They moved out of their apartment. They rented a top-floor garret. She became used to heavy domestic work and the distasteful kitchen chores. She washed the dirty dishes, wearing down her pink nails while scrubbing greasy pots and the bottom of saucepans. She washed the dirty linen, the shirts and the tablecloth by hand and hung them to dry on a line. Every morning, she took the garbage down to the street and carried the water up the stairs, pausing to catch her breath on each landing. And... 
dressed like any working-class woman. She shopped at the fruit sellers, the grocers. And the butchers, with a basket on her arm, haggling, taking in verbal abuse, fighting over every wretched penny. Every month, they had to pay off some notes. Renew others. And bargain for time. Her husband worked in the evenings keeping the books for a shopkeeper and often at night did copying work for five sous a page. They lived like this for ten years. At the end of ten years, they had repaid everything, every single franc, including the creditor's charges and the accumulation of compounded interest. Madame Loiselle looked old now. She had turned into a kind of battling, hard, coarse housewife who rules working-class homes. Her hair was untidy, her skirts were askew, and her skin was red. She spoke in a loud voice and scrubbed floors on her hands and knees. But sometimes, when her husband had gone to the office, she would sit by the window and think of that evening so long ago when she had been so beautiful and so admired. What would have happened had she not lost the necklace? Who could tell? Who could possibly tell? Life is so strange, so fickle. How remarkable that the slightest little thing can make or break us. One Sunday, needing a break from her heavy working week, she went out for a walk on the Champs-Élysées. Suddenly she caught sight of a woman pushing a child in a stroller. It was Madame Forestier, still young, still beautiful, and still attractive. Madame Loiselle felt apprehensive. Should she speak to her? Yes, certainly. Now that she had paid in full, she would tell her everything. Why not? She went up to her. Hello, Jeanne. The friend didn't recognize her and was taken aback at being addressed so familiarly by a common woman in the street. But I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> There's some mistake. No mistake. It's me, Mathilde Loiselle. But my poor Mathilde, how oh, you have changed. Yes, I've been through some hard times since I last saw you. Very hard times. And it was all on your account. On my account? Whatever do you mean? Do you remember that diamond necklace you lent me to go to the ministry ball? Yes. What about it? Well, I lost it. Lost it? But you returned it to me. No. I returned another necklace, just like it. And for the last ten years, we've been paying for it. You know, it wasn't easy for us. We had nothing. But it's over now, and done with, and I'm very glad indeed. You mean you bought a diamond necklace to replace mine? Yes, and you never noticed the difference, did you? They were exactly alike. Mathilde smiled a proud, innocent smile. Madame Forestier looked very upset, and taking both her hands, she said, Oh, my poor Mathilde. But it was only a fake, an imitation. It could not have been worth much more than 500 francs.
You have been listening to Chatterbox Audio Theatre's production of The Necklace by Guy de Maupassant, featuring Margaret Macaulay as the narrator, Laura Loth as Mathilde Loisel, Alex Novikov as Monsieur Loisel, and Iris Laverdon as Madame Forestier. Music by Catherine Whitfield. Sound effects by Iris Laverdon. Produced by Robert Arnold. Adapted and directed by Shira Malkin and Karen Strawn. This is Shira Malkin. The mission of Chatterbox Audio Theatre is sparking imaginations through outstanding theatrical recordings. Download our shows, meet our cast and crew, and make a donation to support our work at www.chatterboxtheatre.org. Hi there. Are you a fan of all things horror? Yeah, you are? Well, in that case, find Tuesday Terrors, which is the mutual audio feed that comes out on a Tuesday, believe it or not. Shock horror, I know. But if you subscribe there, you'll find amazing horror fiction audio in your player every Tuesday. Yeah. Tuesday Terrors. Subscribe to the Mutual Audio Network. This is the Mutual Audio Network, listening and imagining together.